Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all here. Welcome. And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I have one announcement to make, um, and that is on Jubilee Sunday, which is celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is on the 5th of June, we hope to have the opportunity to get together um, and have a church picnic after the morning service. And the good news is that puddings will be provided. So hope many of you can make it. And uh, we're looking forward to a good time then. But we're here to worship God. And we're going to start by singing this song, which encourages us to open our mouths and share what's in our hearts about how great our God is and how good he's been to us. So let's uh, stand and sing. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. wonderful that we can sing about how great our God is, but it's even more wonderful that we can talk to the God of heaven. We can speak to him as our Father. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can pray to you. And Lord, we ask that you will help us to be connected to you in a very real way. Oh Lord, we are are sorry that so often what we know about you somehow gets crowded out in the busyness of life and we go our own stupid way. 
and we think we can cope with life on our own. And we become independent and unfruitful and cold and dead. And Lord, we, we pray that you will refresh us, that you will remind us of your great love for us. A love we don't deserve. A love which is so amazing that you gave your son to take the punishment that people who'd been spending their lives ignoring and deliberately going against you could be forgiven, could be welcomed into your family. And Father, we thank you that because you didn't hold back in giving your son who you love, we can be confident that you will give us everything we really need. Oh Lord, we thank you that your power is just the same as when you made this world. That you see everything, that you know everything, and that we can bring everything to you. But as we realise you see and you know everything, there are things that we would want to hide from you. Oh Lord, you know our hearts, you know we want to present our respectable best front and and Lord we are foolish because we know that you see everything you know our angry thoughts you know our spiteful words you know the things that we have done this week that we're kidding ourselves about that they aren't really wrong but we know they are oh Lord give us sensitive hearts And help us, as we now confess to you, the wrong things we've done. Father, we thank you that you are not some austere, remote figure. But you tell us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and you're just to forgive us our sins. And we pray that we will know the joy of being forgiven because of Jesus. Oh Lord, we do thank you that so often we hear your word taught here and it's so clear and so helpful. And we thank you for the gifts you've given John and we thank you that he's uh, got a holiday now. And we pray that you'll bless him and Esther. We pray that you'll give them a real time of refreshment. And we pray that he'll come back renewed and energised. And Lord, we're glad that Scythe has been able to come down from Coventry. We, we thank you for him and pray, Lord, that as he brings your word to us, we will have a real sense of you speaking to us. We will have a real sense that this is our God and our God has a message for us. Oh Lord, there is so much in this world that we're glad about. Oh Lord, we are glad to hear news of how people in Iran are turning to you and how there's a a need for thousands of Bibles for people who are turning to find your truth. We're glad to hear how students are inquiring about where they can find out about you. And Lord, we pray that that will be something that grows more and more as the emptiness of our Society based on things and experiences bites home. 
Oh Lord, we pray many people, whether they're students or more mature or younger, will turn and find the joy that there is in knowing you. And Lord, we're we're glad to hear of developments in America where it seems that unborn babies are more likely to be protected. Oh Lord, we, we pray that in our country there will be a heart for the vulnerable, a heart for those who need protecting. Oh Lord, we pray that you will give us eyes to see and hearts that feel for those who are poor and neglected and treated badly. And Lord, we pray that we won't just feel bad, but that we'll do something about it. Oh Lord, we do thank you for the Christians who do and pray that more of us will follow their example and pray, Lord, that it will become clearer and clearer how, how your way is a good way how your way leads from hurt and pain and anguish and guilt and hatred and fighting to joy and peace. And as we think of the fighting in this world, oh Lord, we are sad, whether it's in Yemen or Ukraine or all the other parts in the world that don't hit the headlines at the moment. Oh Lord, we we pray that you will be kind and though we don't deserve it, that you will turn people away from hatred and fighting and turn people back to you. Oh Lord, we pray that our hearts will be changed so that we are full of love and joy and peace, so that we are joy bringers rather than joy takers. Oh Lord, we we ask for big things because we know what we're like. But Lord, we thank you that your spirit is living in each one of your children. And we pray that that will be poured out more and more so that we are able to be lights in this world that we live in. So Lord, do help us as we carry on worshipping you and help us as we carry on living. Oh Lord, we pray that you will speak to us today and that you'll make us listen. Amen. Our next song celebrates uh, what Jesus did um, once, 2,000 years ago, a bit more than 2,000 years ago. He came. He came to this world. Then after we've sung, uh, John's going to do the children's talk. So if the children come up the front for that.
That's good. It's good to see so many of you down the front. Are you all okay? Excellent. Now, I'm going to be talking to you this morning about something that you guys do all the time. All the time. You ask questions, don't you? Now, I'm allowed to embarrass him a little bit because he's 18 next week, and um, after that, I'm not going to be able to embarrass him. Well, Elijah used to ask questions all the time when he was younger, to the point where my uncles actually make fun of him about it. When he was like your age here, we'd say something like, oh, did you see that snake in that tree? And he'd go, where's the snake? Where's the snake? Where's the snake? Where's the snake? And we counted once, he asked 17 times, and then he kept asking, where is that snake? And he'd always ask questions all the time, over and over again. Now, I went out yesterday with um, my family, and we met up with our larger family. If you were there, put your hand up. I heard a lot of questions yesterday. I heard... Can I go on the bouncy castle? Did any of you say that yesterday? I know one of you did. (laughs) Can I go on the kayak? Can I have an ice cream? Can I have a drink? I heard a question yesterday as well. Is How old is Auntie Ruth? But I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) 
If you want to ask her, you can ask her yourself. (laughs) But you ask lots of questions, don't you? And hopefully today, I'm going to talk to you in a bit about a question that was asked that was very, very simple and a fantastic question to ask. And I'm going to get an answer as well that was the best answer that any one of you could ever hear. So you're looking forward to that? But I'm thinking maybe you guys ask questions like this. What's for tea? Who asks what's for tea? I do. In fact, I really wind Steph up sometimes because I will phone her when I'm at work and I will say, Steph, what's for tea tonight? I have told you three times already what's for tea tonight, she'll say to me. And I will still ask. And not only that, who then says, what time's tea ready? I always say that as well. I ask the question, Steph, what time's tea ready? And she'll say, I've told you five times already what time's tea's ready. So I ask a lot of questions to her. What about this? Who likes mathematics? You do? Well, I didn't like maths at all when I was at school. In fact, I wasn't very good at it at all. But I also found that sometimes when I asked a question that I needed to know the answer to, sometimes I got the answer back that was more complicated than the answer that I asked in the first place. And that wasn't very good for me, was it? Do you, any of you have that with maths? Any of you? You do, Annie, yet? I found it really, really complicated. Now, this one's for the men, this slide now, and they will understand where I'm coming from. Who out of all these men here get a flat pack from Ikea, you get the instructions, and then you don't understand how to put it together, and you've got bits and pieces missing, and you're like, how do I put this cabinet together again? I do that all the time, and it is really, really frustrating. I get these, this booklet out, and it tells me I should have this, that, and the other. I think I've got it put up, and then all of a sudden, I've either got five pieces too many left over, or I'm missing about four. And I'm like, how do I put this together? So I'm asking lots of questions, and sometimes I really don't get the answer that I want. But I'm going to talk to you now about a man who asked a fantastic question and got the best answer possible. Now, this man was a jailer, and he was in the Bible, and there was a man called Paul, who we all know, don't we? Paul and Silas, and they were going about, and they were spreading the gospel in the area, and they were picked up by the authorities and they were chucked in a prison, in a jail. And you all know what a prison in a jail is? It's not a very nice place to be, is it? And they were in this prison and they're in this jail. They'd been beaten. They were bruised. They probably hadn't been fed. They're probably feeling really, really weak. And guess what they did one night? They started singing. They started singing hymns and they started praying to God. And then something amazing happened. Something really, really amazing happened. There was an earthquake And all the doors on the prisons flung open and all the shackles and the chains that were binding Paul and Silas, they fell off and they were able to escape from the prison. Now that sounds pretty good if you're chucked in prison, doesn't it? That all the doors flung open and all the chains fell off and you can walk out of prison. And the prison guard, the jailer, was so worried when this happened because he thought that all the prisoners had escaped and run away, and he was a very proud man, and he thought to himself, he's going to be in so much trouble now that all these prisoners have escaped. He was actually going to kill himself. But then he heard a voice, and Paul spoke to him and told him not to do that. And, he, and when um, Paul stopped him, the jailer asked this question, and this is the question I want to, to ask you today as well. He says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So the jailer said to Paul, and so I said, what must I do to be saved? Now, that's a very, very simple question to ask, isn't it? But it's got an absolutely amazing answer. And this is what they answered the jailer. They said to him, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I'm sure that that prisoner might have felt, they're not going to answer me with, a question, with an answer like that. We might have thought ourselves, we might have thought, well, if the prisoner's asking, the prison jailer's asking them, what must he do to be saved? We might think, well, Paul might say to him, because I've chucked him in prison and I've locked him up, he might say, oh, you've got to be really, really good. You've got to be really repentant of your sins. You've got to really be sorry for what you've done. We're chucking all these people in prison. You've got to live a better life. He didn't say that to him. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, that's an amazing answer, isn't it? And I'm really glad that he made that answer as well because I actually asked the same question when I was younger. Not quite as young as you, a little bit older, but I thought to myself, when I started to really think about who Jesus was and what he'd done, I started to think to myself, you know, what must I do to be saved? And the Bible tells us it's really, really simple. It's not complicated like mass sums. It's nothing like that whatsoever. It's so, so simple. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you truly believe and you truly put your trust in Jesus, you are saved. And then you will want to be doing all the things that Jesus asked us to be. You will be repentant of the things that you've done wrong. You will want to be good. You will want to come to church all the time. You will want to praise him. And I think that's a really amazing answer, don't you? Now, this is the same thing. I'm not just talking to the children, because I think there's lots of people sitting here today, older people as well, that don't know Jesus. Maybe they are asking, what must I do to be saved? And it's very, very simple, believe. Now, I'm going to send you away now, and I'm going to ask you to go home today, and I want you to ask yourself two simple questions. And the first one is, do I need saving? Have a little think about it when you go home, and ask yourself, do I need saving? And then the second one, I want you to ask the same question that the jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? And if you ask that, I'm sure that Jesus will answer you and he will tell you the same thing that he told that jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I think that's amazing, don't you? Excellent. You can go back to your seats now. Thanks, John. Well, we're really pleased to have uh, Sai uh, back down from Coventry to uh, teach us from God's Word. And the passage he's going to be teaching us from is what we're going to be reading now. It's in the book that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and it's the first chapter, and we're starting at the beginning. So that's the first book, first letter to the Corinthians, first chapter, and starting at the beginning. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ.
God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and that no one may say that they were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We're looking forward to Sai explaining that to us. Um, But before he does that, uh, we're going to sing our next hymn, which is Above the Voices of the World Around Me. My hopes, my dreams, my cares and loves and fears, the long-awaited call of Christ has found me. The voice of Jesus echoes in my ears.
great. Well, good morning. It's really good to be back. It's really nice to, uh, to see you. And um, I come with a, a mission. Um, and, and that is as well as um, having fellowship and uh, preaching uh, this morning and this evening. Um, John has asked me to give you a, a book plug. Um, so this book is, is hot off the press. It's just been published. It's entitled Gospel Driven Change. Uh, navigating reform in the local church, and it's by none other than the esteemed Paul Watts, who many of you uh, will know. Um, uh, Paul, um, as you know, has been a, a pastor for many years at the church where I serve in Coventry. Um, it was a Rehoboth, a strict Baptist church, uh, became Lower Ford Street Baptist Church, and is now Hillfields Church, Coventry. And um, he was pastor, began there in 19. 19- 85. And really this book is the, uh, the story of how, um, the church has, um, uh, changed as we live in a changing world, um, while holding on to the unchanging gospel. Um, and that the biblical principles that he and the leadership team, um, held to, um, all through those years. Um, so if you know Paul, I'm sure that you'll be very interested to read the book. It's a really encouraging read. If you know the church, um, it will be a very encouraging read for you. Um, if you're just um, interested um, by uh, God's faithfulness and goodness to a church over um, over years, decades, um, again, this book would be very encouraging for you to read. Um, Paul has been given a hundred of these by the publisher to sell to his nearest and dearest at half price, £4.50. And this is the first opportunity that anyone has had um, to have it at that price. Um, so I've been told I've got to take any unsold books with me back to Coventry. Um, so if you'd like one, um, if you're able to put £4.50 in the bowl out on the table, the stack of them out there, um, please do, do help yourself. I'm sure you'd be encouraged by it. Um, and and, and it would be a real blessing. Uh, let me read you um, one review um, from the book. See if you can re- recognise who wrote this. I loved reading this book. I have a keen interest in this gospel work in Coventry. I have had a keen interest in this gospel work in Coventry over many years. It has had a major impact on my own outlook for good. I am pleased to have in print what God has done and taught them. The principles and practical wisdom in this book are not limited to Coventry, however. All those wrestling with handling change in a way that is biblical, wise, loving, sensitive and faithful will find help in its pages. Hopefully that includes most of us. John Cowley, pastor of Forestfold. There you go. Comes with high recommendation. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, 1, Chronic- 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 1 and uh, verses 18 uh, to 25, especially. Uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, uh, especially. And as you turn up those verses, um, I've got some pictures, pictures of four animals to show you. Um, if you think you know what they are, um, shout out and we'll see whether you really do or not. So hopefully we've got the first one uh, to come up. Um, if you can click the, the slide forward, that'd be great. Okay, anyone know what that animal is? Owl, owl yeah, it's, it's an owl. And you know what kind of owl it is? Apart from an owl in a tree. Tawny? Eastern Screech Owl. There you go. You were close. Eastern Screech Owl. Uh, the next one. If we can have that one up. There we go. 
What animal is that? There is an animal there. Yes, stonefish. Uh, the most poisonous fish that there is. Uh, what about that one? Caterpillar, yeah. Frog. So the, 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 the caterpillar was the uh, common barren caterpillar. And this one, of course, is a chameleon. Uh, all creatures uh, that are famous for blending in with their surroundings, uh, making them very difficult to detect and notice that they are their part of God's remarkable uh, design and creation. Uh, the church, however, as part of the new creation is not to take on that characteristic of those animals. It's not to blend in with its surroundings. It's not to lose its distinctiveness. It's not to become so like the world that it looks like the world, meaning that it loses its impact in the world and on the world. And yet that was one of the things that was happening to the church in Corinth. Uh, They'd started to follow the mindset and the wisdom and the methods of the city that they lived in. And they were allowing those things to define them and shape them as a church. And so it was becoming increasingly difficult to see the difference between the church and the society in which they lived. The differences were becoming more blurred. And uh, so while Paul could say rightly in verse 2 that they were the church in Corinth, he could just have legitimately have said that in a major way, Corinth was also in the church. And uh, that's an ongoing theme that Paul deals with uh, through his first letter as this uh, temptation to conform to society was expressing itself in different ways. Uh, And it's a good question to ask ourselves from time to time, As a Christian, as churches, am I conforming to the world in any way? Am I blending in with the society that is around me, perhaps in ways that I haven't noticed or seen before? Am I being like a chameleon in different aspects of the way in which I live my life? Now what Paul says in verses 18 to 25 is is directly linked to verses 10 to 17. You see the message of wisdom in verse 17 is being contrasted with the message of the cross in verse 18. And uh, these contrasts, they continue all through this section as the power and the wisdom of God is set against the power and the wisdom of the world. And uh, at the end we'll come back to see how verses 18 to 25 continue Paul's argument in verses 10 to 17. Now, now the issue that Paul is specifically dealing with in verses 18 to 25 is how the Corinthian church was being tempted to rely on the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God and the message of the cross. And so our first heading is the cross, a foolish message. If we can have that, the cross, a foolish message. Uh, The beginning of verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So to the world, the Christian message and the message of the cross is a silly message. It is a silly message. It is daft. It is laughable. It is ridiculous. It is foolish. It is stupid. And if I'm being honest with you, Uh, There are times, more times than I care to admit, when I feel embarrassed by the message of the cross. And I feel ashamed of the Christian message. 
And my suspicion is, is that in your more honest moments, that there are times, more times than you care to admit, when you two are embarrassed and you are ashamed of the Christian message and the message of the cross. I mean, it's easy when you get together on a Sunday at church, and for the most part, everyone loves Jesus, um, or they love the gospel and they love the cross. Uh, But then on a Monday, when I have the opportunity to tell a neighbour about how they can come to know God through Jesus dying at Calvary, uh, my temptation is, is to not tell them, uh, to not take this opportunity. Because I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed and I care too much about what they will think about me. Because I know that compared to the latest scientific research and the current philosophical trends to the world, the message of the cross, it doesn't sound very clever or up up to date or sophisticated. Rather, it sounds silly and old-fashioned and irrelevant. Uh, Maybe you've seen the debate, it took place a few years ago between the biologist Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, and and John Lennox, professor of mathematics, Oxford University, um, a Christian who's written several books about God's existence, and they debate the existence of God from different scientific angles, Uh, but then at the end, in his summing up, in his conclusion, John Lennox just simply pointed to the gospel, and in that instance, he focused on the resurrection, And you can just see and you can hear the contempt in Dawkins' voice as he responded to that conclusion by describing Lennox's scientific arguments as sophisticated, but his gospel message, which, to quote Dawkins, is so petty, so trivial, so local, so earthbound, so unworthy of the universe unsophisticated, that's what the world thinks about the gospel, a message about a man in Palestine claiming to be God, dying on a cross over 2,000 years ago. It's so local, it's, it's so earthbound, it's so petty, it's so trivial. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. And if the world thinks that now, my suspicion is, is that they thought it even more in first century Corinth. So, so Corinth, as you know, as you've been going through two Corinthians, was a city in southern Greece, and it loved clever philosophical arguments and sophisticated sounding wisdom. Uh, even more than that, it loved um, um, a style of talking and speaking and presentation which was concerned not really with the truth of what was being said, but the eloquence and the flair and the skill in which it was presented. And so just the the simple message of the cross, it, it just wouldn't have gained much traction in first century Corinth. And to add to that, I think it's easy for us to underestimate how offensive the cross And how offensive the message of the cross was in the first century. So in the first century, you would have never seen anyone wear a piece of jewellery shaped like a cross around their neck. You would have never seen that. The cross was not an attractive image in the first century. No, the cross was a barbaric, excruciatingly method of execution. Uh, It was designed to uh, prolong as much pain and suffering to the victim as possible. 
And it was designed to bring as much shame and disgrace upon the victim as possible. So much so, so much shame and disgrace associated with being crucified that Roman citizens were exempt from it. So if you had a family member who was crucified, you would disown them. You would write them out of your family history. You you would cross them from your family tree. A crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of society, for the slave, for the criminal, for the pirate, uh, for the reject. Now listen to what the Roman politician Cicero, living at the time of Julius Caesar, said about crucifixion. He said, crucifixion was so horrible... So disgusting, so terrible, that the word cross should never be mentioned in polite society. The word cross should never be mentioned in polite society. He said, it's a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one. Sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. And so to say that a crucified reject was the son of God and that your only way to know God was through this crucified reject to the Greeks who loved wisdom, verses 22 and 23, that would have just been absurd. That would have been absurd. It would have been stupid. It would have been silly. It would have been daft. It would have been ridiculous. It would have been laughable. Uh, They would have said to you, if you would have explained to them that the only way for them to know God is through this man who died on the cross, they would have said to you, you are insulting my intelligence. You are insulting my intelligence. To the Greeks, it was foolish. To the Jews, verses 22 and 23, it was a stumbling block. Uh, The cross was a massive obstacle to the Jews accepting that Jesus was the Messiah. In their eyes, a crucified Messiah was the last thing they were looking for. Indeed, it was the very opposite uh, to what they were looking for. They were looking for signs, verses 22 and 23. Uh, They were looking for a Messiah that provided visible displays of miraculous power and could only ever be associated with strength. What they weren't looking for was a Messiah who in weakness was nailed to a cross. And what they weren't looking for was a Messiah who was not just rejected by society, but was rejected by God himself. And so, to both the Jews and the Greeks, the message of the cross was at best laughable, and at worst, deeply offensive. Deeply offensive. And the Christians in this church in Corinth would have been very tempted to be embarrassed by the cross, ashamed of the cross, tempted to sideline the cross, marginalise the cross, take the focus off the cross, perhaps sometimes even to ditch the cross. And when they were wanting to lead people to God that they might know him, they would only ever use clever arguments or philosophical, logical understanding or their equivalent of um, the scientific research or archaeological proof. And and they wouldn't bring people's minds to the cross. And, And I want to ask you whether actually, in the same way, you are conforming to the world around you. That when you speak to people about Jesus, 
and you speak to them about God and you want to lead them to a knowledge of God, you're tempted to do exactly the same thing. And you match their scientific argument with scientific argument, their philosophical, uh, philosophical um, reasoning with, with philosophical reasoning, with different historical fact, and yet you don't bring them to the cross. You don't bring them to the cross. And yet though the world thinks that the simple message of the cross is foolishness, uh, if we can have a, our next slide, to the people who are being saved, verses 18 and 24, it is, it is the very wisdom and the power of God. This is the other side of the same coin. Verse 18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so if we can have our second heading, and that is the cross, the wisdom and the power of God. The cross, the wisdom and the power of God. And the story goes that there were two women who went to see the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. And one said to another, I don't like it. I can't see what all the fuss is about. And there was an attendant standing there and he said, Madame, I was going to do it all in a French accent, but that's all I've got. He said, the Mona Lisa stood the test of time. And when you stand before her, it is not she who is being judged, it is you. And so what you think of that painting doesn't bear any reflection on how good the painting is so much. But it does say something about you. And in a sense, that the cross operates in the same, but in an infinitely more profound way. The cross, it divides humanity. Um, it stands in judgment over humanity. It divides people, and not between Jew and Greek, but between saved and unsaved. And so to those who say that the message of the cross is foolishness, the cross says of them, they're perishing, they're not saved. And to those who say that the message of the cross is both the wisdom and the power of God, and I'm trusting in a crucified saviour, the cross says of them that they are saved. Now if you look in verses 19 to 21, Paul is both challenging and exposing the fact that human intelligence and human wisdom is very, very limited. It can only go so far. And he does so by using two examples. So in verse 19, he's quoting Isaiah 29 and verse 14. And the situation there is is that people were honouring God with their mouths and the words that they were saying, but their hearts were far from him. And the reason why their hearts were far from him was because they were following a man-made set of rules in order to draw near to him and not the way that God has designed. And so they were depending on human intelligence and human wisdom to draw near to God, and they were failing. Uh, They weren't using the method that God has designed. In verse 20, Isaiah 19 and verse 12 is being referred to. And the situation there is that a, a, a hostile Assyria was threatening the people of Judah. And yet instead of Judah crying out to God to save them, uh, they thought that they could manage very well by themselves, thank you very much. And so what they were doing is they were asking Egypt to be um, their ally. Uh, They were asking Egypt to come in and rescue them. 
Uh, They were depending on their own methods and means, their own intelligence and wisdom, uh, their own skills in, um, in, in diplomacy and bargaining, and they weren't looking to God. And, and again, it just didn't work. A human intelligence and ways of doing things and wisdom just completely failed. Now, in Paul challenging and showing how limited human wisdom and intelligence uh, is, um, he's not saying that human logic and rationale and uh, intelligence and wisdom and skillful and persuasive ways of presenting truth have no place in the Christian faith. Far from it. He's not saying that at all. Uh, You only need to read through his letters to see how logical and rational and intelligent and wise and skillful and persuasive he was. Uh, And these things, they can be very effective in, say, in apologetics, in in undermining false foundations and false beliefs. And yet what Paul is saying is, is that humanity can't find God and humanity can't come to know God by itself. Are using its own methods, depending on its own resource, research and wisdom and intelligence. You can only come to know God through the way that God has appointed. You can only come to know God through the way that God has designed, through the cross. And through the preaching and the message of the cross. And that is the way that God has designed for people to savingly come to know him. And so Paul, he asks some rhetorical questions in verse 20. And he says, where is the wise person? Or where is the philosopher? Or where is the rabbi? Or where is the debater? Or where are they in terms of their achievement? And what have they to bring to the table? And what do they have to offer in bringing people to a saving and personal knowledge of God? In effect, he's saying something like this by by asking those questions. He's saying, when has the scientist come to personally know God and the forgiveness of all of their sins simply by looking into a test tube? When has that happened? And when has the mathematical genius ever come to know God as his Lord and Saviour by working out an equation? When has that happened? And the answer is never. It's, it's never happened. And they should never expect it to happen because human wisdom and intelligence is so limited. It has its uses, but it's so limited. On, on the 7th of August 1961, uh, 26-year-old Major German Titov uh, became only the second human being to go up into space to orbit all the way around the Earth and then come back down safely and return. A, a monumental, uh, magnificent feat for humanity. Uh, speaking sometime later at the welfare, he told people what it was like, this unique experience. And savouring his moment of glory... He let people know that when he went up into space, uh, he didn't find God there. He didn't see God there. And therefore, in his opinion, God didn't exist. So his thinking was, he'd gone up into space, he didn't see God there, therefore God didn't exist. To which, on hearing his argument, uh, someone made the joke, well, if he'd taken off his space suit, the outcome would have been very different. But human wisdom... 
and intelligence is very limited. In and of itself, it can't lead people to a personal knowledge of God. In that respect, Paul is saying in verses 20 and 21, God has made it foolish. God has made it foolish. With God deciding, verse 21, that rather it will be through the cross, uh, the simple message and preaching of the cross, that people will be saved. A Christ dying to save others. A taking their punishment in their place. A satisfying God's justice. And making peace between heaven and earth. A bringing reconciliation between God and the sinner. And it happens, doesn't it? Again and again and again and again. People, those who are called, verse 24, they hear the message of the cross. And through this message that the world counts as silly and stupid, they are saved. They hear about Jesus dying at Calvary. And as they hear about Jesus dying at Calvary, this miracle takes place and they come to know the Lord for themselves. I think of the the many children and teenagers that you've had coming through the the camps and the youth holidays over, over decades. And how so often it was the message of the cross that drew them to the Lord. As their eyes were opened to his grace and his mercy and his love and his power and his forgiveness. As they saw their names written in his wounds. And they realised that by his suffering, they are now free. You see, there's power in the cross. There's power in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's power in uh, the message and the preaching of the cross. Because it's at the cross that people see in Jesus uh, the very wisdom of God on display. And they see the answer to their greatest needs. And so it's true, verse 25, if we can have the next slide. Uh, The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So, so, so the greatest human wisdom, that, that, that they will never be able to give people a saving knowledge of God. Never. And yet what the world counts as a foolish message will, and it does, and it can. And, and, and the greatest display of human strength It it will never get rid of people's sins. People try, they try and get rid of their own sins. They try and atone for their own sins. They try and remove the guilt for their sins. The greatest uh, display of human strength will will never get rid of people's sins. But a saviour dying in weakness, nailed to a tree, he can and he does. And he gets rid of people's sins as far as the east is from the west. And he takes their sin and their guilt far away. He blots it out of God's sight. His blood, it washes it completely away. And so we come to our final heading, and that is the cross. A challenge and an encouragement. The cross, a challenge and an encouragement. The cross is a challenge because it is so, so humbling. The cross is so, so humbling. 
It tells us that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And we are completely dependent upon Jesus dying on a cross. Completely dependent. There is no other way. There is no other way. There was nothing that humanity could do to make itself right with God. Humanity needed God to do everything for them. Carl Henry wrote this. He said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? The cross is so humbling because it cuts the ground out from beneath your feet. It gives you nothing in and of yourself to boast in. And the only person and thing that you can truly boast in is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done in dying for you. And the cross is so humbling because the message of it is the method that God has decided to use to save people. The cross is so humbling because the message of it is the method that God has designed to use to save people. So God has decided that people being saved will not dispense, will not depend on the speaker. God has decided that people being saved will not depend on the speaker. It it will not depend on their gifts. It will not depend on their ability. Uh, It it will not depend on how eloquent they are. Uh, it, It will not depend on whether or not they've been to university. No, it will depend on God and his message. Now the situation here in Corinth is that though Paul, when he went to Corinth back in Acts 18, and he preached the simple message of the cross, and many were saved and this church was born, um, the church has started to move away from the cross, and it started to take on the wisdom and the intelligence and the mindset and the methods of the world around them. And so they were doing things more according to the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. And so they were being tempted to to marginalise the cross and to sideline the cross and to push the cross to one side and rather to use more clever arguments in trying to persuade people about the existence of God and how they need to come to God. And what they were certainly starting to do and think was that the effectiveness of their message depended on the speaker. Uh, on their gifts, on their eloquence, uh, on the skillful arguments that they used, on, on how good they were at preaching or teaching or debating. And so you see there in verse 12 that they were, they were now championing their, their favourite preachers. Uh, and they were creating these, these followings around their favourite preachers. Uh, and what was happening was, was they had become proud. And, and, and they were making the mistake of the world and they were, they were elevating humanity. And they were elevating themselves and they were elevating their favourite preachers. And and in their pride they'd forgotten that their only boast was in God and the cross. And, and, And isn't this a challenge for you? And isn't this a challenge for me? I I find this a massive, massive challenge. So here is one way in which it can be a challenge. 
How much do you put your confidence in the speaker than in God and the content of the message? How much do you put your confidence in the speaker than in God and the content of the message? I think that's a massive challenge for the evangelical world and the big-name speakers. How much we put our confidence in God than in the speaker. Another challenge is when we're wanting to lead people to God, how reliant are you on clever philosophical arguments and scientific understanding and archaeological facts, as helpful as those things are, And how much do you trust God and tell them about the cross? So do you ever get to the cross? When you're wanting to talk to people about God, do you ever get to the cross? Do you place weight on the cross? Do you bring a focus and attention to the cross? Do you ever tell people about the cross? A challenge for me uh, along these kinds of lines is is when preaching, how much, subtly speaking, how much is my trust being put in illustrations and stories and the way in which sentences are worded? And it might not sound like it, but I do take a lot of time trying to work out how to word things. It doesn't come out as a jumble like this without a lot of effort. But it's a challenge for me. How much am I depending on the illustrations and the stories and how a message is put together and how much am I simply on my knees before God asking him to bless it, asking him to work? How much do I preach on the cross? How much do I preach on the cross? At the cross it challenges us. It challenges us. Uh, but the cross, it also encourages us. At uh, the cross, it encourages us. God, he, he saves people through the message of the cross. And uh, when people hear about Jesus dying at Calvary, people get saved. It happens. It works. It's true. Uh, maybe you're someone who just doesn't know God this morning, and, and maybe you've been trying to find God um, On your own terms, you've been using your own intelligence and wisdom and methods and ways of coming to find God. Well, well, look to the cross. And look to this place where God reveals himself in his mercy and his grace and his wisdom and his power. When people hear about Jesus dying at Calvary, people, they get saved. And so we shouldn't be embarrassed by the cross Uh, We shouldn't pass up opportunities to tell people about Jesus dying on the cross because the cross is the very power and the wisdom of God. Um, In 1955, Billy Graham um, came over from the States and uh, was going to go to Cambridge University to preach a series of sermons. Uh, Before his arrival, the English media, they had a, a field day at his expense as they showed their disdain and their scepticism about his visit. And this is what one paper asked. What in the world is this backwards American fundamentalist doing, coming to talk to our best and brightest? Uh, Billy Graham afterwards admitted that he felt very intimidated by all the criticism that he was receiving. And he felt extremely nervous when preparing his messages. 
Uh, he knew that his listeners would be made up of university professors and doctors, theologians, and other intellectual elites. And so what he did in his preparation was he, he looked for as many cultural and philosophical illustrations as he could, and he, he filled his messages with those. Uh, for the first three nights, the halls were packed, but the response was tiny. And so on the last night, Billy Graham, he decided to abandon what he had prepared and just simply preach on the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Instead of boasting in his intellectual ability, he realised that what he needed to boast in was Jesus and him crucified. Uh, Dick Lucas, who was an Anglican pastor and he was there, um, he later said this. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed church. And that night, Billy got up and started at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all through the church for three quarters of an hour. He said, the two people I was with were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything that they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of that sermon, to everyone's shock, About 400 young men and women stayed behind to commit their lives to Christ. Dick Lucas, he later met a young curate and Cambridge graduate in Birmingham. And over tea, he asked, where did Christian things begin for you? All the curate said, Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How did it happen? He said, all I remember as I walked out of the church, was for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. Christ really died for me. You see, there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is power in the cross. And we shouldn't marginalise it, or sideline it, or push it to the fringes, or ditch it. We should glory in it, and we should boast in it, because it is the power and the wisdom of God. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our final song. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love towards this world. And Father, we thank you that, although we cannot save ourselves, and although we cannot do anything, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth and to reconcile ourselves to you. We thank you that you have done what it takes and that you've given your son to die on a cross and that you've displayed your power and your wisdom and your glory, Lord, in ways that we can't get our head around. And Father, we pray, Father, that you would forgive us if if we've become too familiar or casual about the cross. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would forgive us if we've lost sight of its majesty and its glory and its wonder of how you are revealed there, uh, Lord, in, in, in ways which are so incredible. And Father, we pray that you would keep us from being ashamed or embarrassed by the cross. And we pray, Father, that we would love to tell people about it. And we pray, Lord, that if there are any here who, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that maybe for the first time in their lives, uh, Lord, that they would stop trying to... Um, Uh, come to know you through their own efforts and means and methods and wisdom. And Lord, that they would uh, see your power and your wisdom on display at Calvary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We're going to have our, our last song now, so please do stand when the music starts.
Father, we pray that as we go away, Lord, as we enjoy dinner and lunch, we pray that these words, these themes will be on our minds and hearts. Lord, we pray that they might be doing us good, that they might be satisfying our souls, that they might be causing us to glory in Jesus and be taken up with him. And Lord, we pray that we might be um, uh, drawn in worship to him. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'll be with us through the day. Uh, Lord, be close to us, keep us safe. And uh, we pray that we might magnify you in all that we do. Amen.